this is Mike Sweeney, and I want to welcome you to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. I'll tell you what, if you are a fan of the Kansas City Royals, we have an absolutely must-listen-to Clubhouse Conversation, a very special one with Mike Sweeney today, a man that really needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyways because he deserves that. Mike Sweeney, a surefire Royals Hall of Famer. The man played in five All-Star games. He's in the top 10 of 20 career Royals all-time batting stats. He played parts of 16 seasons in the big leagues and was able to retire a Royal and now works as a special assistant to baseball operations for Dayton Moore and company. Mike Sweeney, who promises us a very blunt, a very honest conversation here on Clubhouse Conversation, telling things he has never unveiled publicly before. Looking forward to this one. Mike, what's up? Hey, David. What's up, buddy? Just living the dream. How about you? I'm doing the same, man. I'm I'm having a great day. I had a great Easter yesterday and was excited to connect with you today well uh first of all tell us more about your new position with the royals and uh, and how that's going well it's a fancy title <laughs> uh special assistant to baseball operations but basically it's uh it's a title that will encapsulate many different roles uh i'm going to wear many different hats i'm going to be um doing many different jobs but the most important thing is i'll be wearing a kansas city royals uniform and putting on that uniform with number 29 on the back means the world to me. Uh, I'll be traveling to a lot of the minor league facilities. Uh, I'll be coming into Kansas City a few times to help Dayton and his staff out. I'll be making some trips in and out of spring training and instruction league and, you know, just trying to do what I can um, as a non-player to have a small impact. So that's that's kind of my role. You know, last night I exchanged messages with Justin Maxwell about uh, creating a routine and um, how what the difference is between a player that is an everyday player and a part-time player and how your routine should uh, make you feel that you're an everyday player no matter if you're in the game or not. And just little things that I experienced over my career that I could maybe pass along to that next generation, uh, more importantly the Royals generation. And uh, this group of guys that Ned and Dayton has assembled this year and hopefully just be a small part of something special. I love how big of a Royals fan you are, too. I mean, you're watching almost every single game out there in San Diego. I am. We have the MLB package out here in San Diego, and most every single day at 5 o'clock here or 11 o'clock in the morning on day games, uh, me and my kids are sitting around a barbecue watching the Royals play baseball, listening to guys like HUD and Ryan LaFever and Fizioc and Jeff Montgomery, and it's uh, it's quite a treat. Even though I'm not back in the Midwest, I feel like I'm there almost every single day when I'm watching the broadcast. So before we go back in the day, I also want to talk about uh, the foundation that you and your wife have started. Uh, talk about that and tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so when I was back in Kansas City playing for the Royals, my wife and I thought, you know what, life is bigger than just us. Let's, uh, let's make our lives be about impacting others. So we, start, we started helping crisis pregnancy centers. We started helping uh, put on music ministry concerts and um, and I would go around and, you know, share the gospel through baseball uh, by doing baseball camps and speaking at schools and churches and 
visiting kids in hospitals because, you know what, Devo, life is bigger than ourselves. And I often think, what's, what's our legacy? How do we want to be remembered? Do we want to be remembered as a, a cool DJ or a great baseball player? Or do we want to be remembered for more, more than that? And uh, we started our foundation in, in Kansas City, and it's kind of morphed into we're doing Catholic baseball camps all over the country. And our uh, mission statement is to use the greatest game ever played which obviously is baseball, <laughs> to share the greatest story ever told, and that's the story of Christ. And um, that's what we're doing. We, we host camps in Seattle, Kansas City, and San Diego. They're three-day camps where kids are in an environment where they're around major league ball players, uh, NFL football players, some Hall of Famers, some future Hall of Famers, some just some scrappy guys that played the game that love God or love the game of baseball. And um, for three days, they just are showered with the love of God as well as uh, the love of baseball that we have, and it's uh, it's quite a special special environment. Aren't you doing quite a bit of public speaking these days too? Yeah, I am. I'm I'm doing that as well, and that's kind of a a, a wing of our um, or a branch of our foundation that I'm doing. Is all, all I've been going around the country and uh, just speaking words of encouragement, trying to breathe life into communities or businesses or schools or churches or individuals and. That's my gift. Um, I want to share the gift that I've been given with others. And if it means jumping on a plane to, to share a message, I'm doing it. If it means doing a baseball camp in the Midwest or the, the Northwest or here in San Diego, I'm doing that. And, uh, you know, life is much bigger than ourselves. And you know that, Dave-O. It's, it's quite a gift. You're a busy man and a great man. So let's, let's go way back to 1991. You ready for this? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, you were a 10th round selection of the Royals. You were signed by a man named Floyd Chandler. Um, what do you remember about the day you were drafted, and were you surprised the Royals selected you, or were you kind of expecting that? Well, something that I've, I've never I've never shared with anyone is uh, two things. Number one, the scout that signed me, Floyd Chandler, the first time I met him, he came to my game in Ontario, California. I was a sophomore in high school in this nice white-haired man walks up to me and says, Mike Sweeney, you got an older brother, son? And I said, no, sir, I'm the second oldest of eight kids, and I don't have any older brothers, uh, just an older sister. Well, Mike Sweeney, that name sure sounds familiar, boy. I said, oh, well, no, I'm the, I'm the second oldest of eight kids. Well, you got a good-looking swing, and you're pretty good behind the plate, son. Keep working hard. So I just kind of thought, all right, he gave me an information card to fill out. I filled it out. And about two weeks later, I did a game, and my dad was there. And I see him talking to this scout for the Royals. And after the game, my dad says, Mike, you're never going to believe this. I went to high school in modern-day high school in Orange County, and he said, my senior year of high school, I was drafted by the Kansas City Royals by the same exact scout that is scouting you, Floyd Chandler. In fact, they wanted me to go to the academy with guys like Frank White, and I opted not to. I went to college to play basketball, but... Isn't that cool? I said, man, unbelievable. Well, my senior year, I get drafted by the Royals by the same scout that actually drafted my dad uh, 23 years earlier. Um, the second thing that I've never shared any, with anyone publicly is when I got drafted in the 10th round, they didn't offer me a lot of money. It was $30,000, and after taxes, that's pretty much cut, cut, uh, that's pretty much cut in half. And I had a decision to make. I could go and play baseball at Cal State Fullerton, or I could opt to sign and play professionally for a couple bucks. And um, I didn't know what to do. My parents came in and said, Mike, 
this decision is all yours. You're a 17-year-old young man, and uh, we're going to support you no matter what you do and what you decide to do. And as I sat there on the, we call it the Last Supper table because our dining room table is big enough to feed Jesus and his 12 disciples because <laughs> we have eight kids in our family. And I sat there, and it's just me alone. What do I do? And I made the sign of the cross, and I said, Lord, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do, but help me out here. And I had this overwhelming peace that I was supposed to sign. And part of it was I knew that I wanted to play pro ball. Part of it was I was scared to death. This is the part I've never shared with anyone publicly. I was scared to death that I was going to go to Cal State Fullerton and get injured or not make the team. And I would be stuck relying on my parents to pay for me to go to college. And my parents didn't have any money. So honestly, Devo, I've never shared this. I went into minor league baseball with the mindset of, you know what, I'll give it a shot. I'm going to work as hard as I can. Worst case scenario, the Royals, they offered they offered $30,000 and, and they'll pay for four years of college. And I thought, you know what, maybe I get hurt. Maybe I, I don't play that well. I get released. And at least I get to go to college and I don't have to ask my parents for money. And I'll go get a job driving a beer truck or something like my dad. And I'll just live the rest of my life a happy man. But I don't want to be a burden to my parents. Well, wow. that's, that's how I signed. And I went in in 1991. People think that since I had a great major league career, I had a great minor league career, but it started off rough. I hit 210 my first year in rookie ball, um, hit 220 the next year, spent five years in single A ball before actually getting out. And uh, it, was a, it was a long road, but uh, praise God, I persevered. Um, I worked hard, never took a shortcut, was a good teammate, and uh, things worked out. Well, you mentioned those first few years, 1992 and 93, you were in Eugene. What are your favorite memories of Eugene, Oregon, both on and off the field? Well, I love fishing, so I love the rivers. Um, I don't like the Grateful Dead, and I think everyone <laughs> in Eugene, Oregon does. Right. So that was that was quite a uh, an eye-opening experience. It was the first time playing in front of a neat crowd, um, because in rookie ball, the only one that shows up is your grandparents or maybe a, a, a lady that a guy on your team had met the night before at a <laughs> at a bar. And so you get about two or three people at each game, and it's like, this is minor league baseball, this is rookie ball. Uh, my first paycheck was $96 for two weeks, and I thought, this is the life? <laughs> I get to play at noon in, in, in the middle of Florida in front of three people, and it's 100 degrees with 100% humidity, for what does that equate to about eight bucks a day <laughs> yeah and i thought this is minor league baseball well eugene oregon was fun we went on some long bus trips uh the 12 hour bus trips from eugene oregon to boise idaho um playing in front of big crowds it was kind of my first taste of minor league baseball and the, the one person i remember most is my manager john miserock who without him i never would have become a major league ball player he taught me so much and then also some of my best friends in the world I met in Eugene, Oregon while playing baseball with them. Larry Sutton, Steve Sisko, Ryan Towns, Jeremy Carr. I mean, guys like that, Royals fans have probably never heard of. Um, but those men are some of my best friends to this day. Sadly, I remember all four of those guys <laughs> you just mentioned. That is what you are a faithful Royal Blue fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so 94 was a great year for you, bad year for the Royals, because they would have made the playoffs that year and the strike happened. But anyway, uh, good year for you. You hit over 300 for the first time there as a Rockford Royal. They were only there in Rockford, Illinois, for two years. I've always been kind of intrigued by that two-year experiment in Rockford. Uh, what was that like, and why did the team go away anyway? Well, 
I don't know why the team went away. Rockford, Illinois, was not uh, it was not a booming uh, city. It was kind of a blue collar, depressed town. Um, and I, I don't know. We didn't get many fans, but we played a heck of a lot of baseball, and that's that. That was the, the best part of of Rockford, Illinois, for me. Again, it was the relationships. It was playing for John Miserock. It was. Um, I remember, you know, we had we had a couple good bench clearing brawls. <laughs> That's what I remember about Rockford, Illinois. I remember taking a a drive into Chicago, uh, watching my first major league game at Wrigley Field with some of my teammates on an off day. We sat up in the bleachers and froze, and that was great. And Dave, you'll like this one. What I remember most about Rockford, Illinois, is me and uh, two of my roommates, Kevin Rowitzer and Ryan Towns. <laughs> yeah. We show up in Rockford where we don't have a car, we don't have any money, and uh, <laughs> my buddies say, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's pitch in and get a car. So my buddy Ryan Towns from Gonzales, Texas, he and Kevin Rowitzer go to some car dealership, some car lot, and says, listen up, sir. He's a big old country boy from <laughs> Texas. I got $300, and I want the biggest piece of junk on this lot that drives good. <laughs> so... <laughs> This guy gives us a 1978 Pontiac Grand Safari station wagon with wood paneling on the side. <laughs> and uh, it became our kind of our ma- team mascot. <clears throat> and uh, guys, after an 0 for 4, guys would go up and take their bat, just beat the tar out of the car. <laughs> um, we had, we, it was like the team bus on the way home from the park. Guys didn't have rides, they just jump in the, they called up the hoopty. Um, it was, it was a sight to see. But, uh, again, great memories. When you're not making any money, um, it was uh, the only way to get around town. That's fantastic. The, the <laughs> station wagon, the shagging wagon, right? They call it the Dumb and Dumber. The shagging wagon, man, the old hoopty. Yeah, so, so 1995, a monster year for you in a, in a pretty much a normally pitcher-friendly Carolina league. Uh, yeah. You hit 310, you clubbed 18 home runs, and, and then you got called up in September. I remember thinking, Who, who's this Mike Sweeney guy? You know, 1995, he comes from high A-ball. So was yeah. that call to the big leagues a shock for you, and do you remember that vividly how you found out? Yeah, I'll never forget it. And this is something that I've you – know, I'm sharing a lot of things with you publicly, man. I've, I feel like I'm going to confession. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it was, we were in the playoffs, and I just won a batting title in, in, in Wilmington, Delaware. I was playing again for John Miserock. Uh, who had a huge impact on my career. And we had to live with host families because we didn't have any money to rent an apartment. And after the after the game, I took the host family that I was staying with, I took the little boys, that, um, little Mikey and Brian Testa, I took them out to Shoney's and was getting them dinner at 10.30 at night after a, a playoff game win. So I'm, I'm excited. Just won a batting title. We took first place in our league. We're, we're in the playoffs. We're trying to win a ring. We win our first game. I had a game-winning hit. It was just a neat experience. And I take the little boys. They were ages 7 and 9 at the time. Let's go out and eat, and I'm buying. So we go to Shoney's, and I spoil the kids, and we're out eating. And all of a sudden, my host uh, father drives up in a panic, and he says, Mike, you got to get to the stadium immediately. And I said, what's wrong? He said, it's an emergency. That's all I can tell you. It's an emergency. And John Miserock needs to see you. And the first thing that went through my mind is when my grandparents died, someone in my family sick. We didn't have cell phones at that time. So I jump in the car with the kids, race to the ballpark. And I go in my manager's office, and John Isrock's in there in a pair of sliding shorts. <laughs> and he says, uh, Swing Doug, he says, uh, grab a beer. 
and in his in his office, a typical minor league manager's office, he had a keg of beer and a stack of red Dixie cups. <laughs> and I said, "Well, Rock, you know I don't drink." And he goes, "He goes, Sweeney, you got to have a beer." And I'm thinking, "Oh man." So I'm like, "Well, how do you get the beer out of this keg?" <laughs> he pumped it for me, poured me a glass of beer. I said, "What's going on? Is my family okay?" And he says, uh, "Sweeney, Doug, listen up." He says, tomorrow the Kansas City Royals have a doubleheader against the Toronto Blue Jays, and they want you ready to catch game two. <laughs> and I just started weeping. And uh, it was the coolest the coolest moment of my baseball career up to that point, finally fulfilling my dream um, of playing in the major leagues. And um, I never thought it would come, especially from high A ball, but uh, – Someone in the Royals organization believed in me, and uh, I was so excited at the opportunity. So um, this is probably an easy trivia question for you, but do you remember yeah. who, your first big league hit, who it was off of, and where it was at? I do. Um, so I, I came up thinking I'm going to be playing every day, and I come up my first uh, game. We're playing the, the Blue Jays, and I didn't start game two, but I came in and caught later in the game. And I had a bat, a seven, eight pitch at bat, and I hit a line drive rocket right at the shortstop. And I go, oh man, I almost got my first hit. So, but in that game where I caught, I'm catching the eighth inning, and I look up and I see Paul Molitor, John Allerud, and Joe Carter coming up. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these guys, I, you know, their baseball cards, some of their posters on my wall as a kid, and I get a catch against them. Well, Paul Molitor hits a little chopper off home plate. I come flying out of there barehand it and I chuck it up the right field line. <laughs> so that that later that week in Kangaroo Court, um, Brent Maine, another great Kansas City Royal teammate of mine, I got fined for having more errors in the big leagues than hits. <laughs> so it's just a fun way to loosen the crowd up and so I had to pay twenty five bucks for that. But the last game of the season I come in, we have I, I I've been up in the big leagues for a month and I had a total of two at-bats to my name. I thought I was going to play every day, um, but it didn't work out that way. So the last game of the season that we were playing on a Sunday, Saturday night we have a big team party. So the guys would run out a big suite in the hotel. Uh, we'd have food and drinks and everyone just relaxing. Well, I left there at 11 o'clock at night because I'm thinking, I'm playing tomorrow morning. I'm, I want to get my rest, go to mass in the morning. I'm going to be jazzed up, ready to go. Well, Sunday morning I get there, first one in the locker room, and I'm about the 15th guy on the list, <laughs> about six down in the, in the, uh, on the bench on the right-handers. So I'm like, doggone it, I'm going to finish. No, no hits in my first taste in the big leagues um, with only two at-bats. This is not going to be good. Well, about the sixth inning, we're getting blown out by the uh, Indians, and Bob Boone tells me, Sweeney, you're hitting third next inning. So I was Jack. I come in and get a base hit against Paul Ossenmacher. <laughs> yep. Line drive to right field, and um, that was the way I finished my first year. I, um, my, my next at bat, I faced a guy named Kenny Hill. I'm sure you remember him. And yep. flew out to the the wall in left center field at Jacobs Field, and so I went I went home that off season thinking, man, you know what? I could play at this level, and uh, got got my first hit out of the way, got my first taste of the big leagues out of the way, and it was uh, it was a wonderful wonderful experience. 96, another banner year for you. You were Royals Minor League Player of the Year. You played in Wilmington, Wichita, and Omaha. Also made it back to KC. But let's talk about Wichita real quick. Do you have any nice memories of playing there? I do. Um, I, I remember my roommates. Um, I had some great roommates. Anthony Medrano, 
um, Jeremy Carr, and uh, Larry Sutton, and we, and, excuse me, and Jed Hansen. And we had we had a bunch of guys in a little two-bedroom apartment. We were all best friends, and the things that I remember most were was the game was starting to slow down for me. Um, on a professional level, when you're struggling, the game seems like it's going a million miles an hour. But when you start to have some success, your mind, your body slows down, and the game slows down. And that's the first time the game really started to slow down for me. I was driving the ball out of the ballpark. I was catching well. Um, I was evolving into a great leader. And uh, those are the things that stuck with me on the field. Off the field, it was, again, becoming a young man. I was 22 years old. Um, had some great relationships with guys on our team. And the things that I remember most were going was going to this little dirty old uh, uh, greasy spoon diner after our games because we didn't get good food. We didn't get any food after our games in the minor leagues, so we'd have to go find a diner that was open till midnight. And uh, just hanging out with the guys, grabbing a soda, drinking um, iced tea to stay awake, and uh, eating a, the greasy spoons after home games was just so much fun. But, but that's what I remember most about Wichita. 1997 and 1998, you were pretty much in the big leagues, and you shared time with uh, McFarlane and Fasano. Um, but what I really want to ask you about is, I kind of remember this, but I kind of forgot about it. So after the 97 season, I know Mark Quinn you know, did some acting and stuff, but you made your acting debut on Saturday Night Live with Helen Hunt, right? <laughs> yeah, how about that? Um, and so my agents had this, this contact with Saturday Night Live and NBC Studios. So um, I was playing winter ball in Puerto Rico, and they said, Mike, we really want you to come out for our uh, charity event around Christmas time. We're raising money for juvenile diabetes, and we really want you to be a part of it. So I come out, fly out from Puerto Rico, and uh, had a great, great night. And um, <clears throat> a couple weeks before, they called our contact at NBC Studios and says, hey, uh, we have about 15 major league ball players, and we want to bring them to the show to watch Saturday Night Live. Well, the producer of the show catches wind of it and says, let's produce a skit. We'll get Helen Hunt in there, and we got this um, uh, Jack Nicholson is going to be on the set. And... Uh, it was it was so cool, and um, we ended up becoming part of a set with with uh, Chris Kattan and um, uh, what's the actor Ron Burgundy? Yeah, oh, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. <laughs> he uh, he was in the set, so I, I it was a it was a blast. Um, we got to ruin a kid's dream of becoming a major league ball player by being <laughs> a corrupt group of major league ball players, and it was it was a fun experience. Um, getting to go ice skating on Rockefeller Center with with uh, Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson, Will, Will Ferrell, and the, the old group Hanson. Remember the little... Of course. Uh, the little boy group? Well, they were playing. They were the music group that night. So it was something I'll always remember, um, something I'll probably never do again, but it was, uh, it was a great experience. So the 1999 season was one that was kind of your true coming-out party for you know the offense. 322 at the major league level, 22 jacks, 102 RBIs. You were also playing first base after Jeff King kind of abruptly retired. So were you okay with moving away from catcher at that time or heartbroken or both? Um, Dave, well, initially I was heartbroken because there was no plans for me to become an everyday player. Uh, Tony Muser told me, well, um, the team doesn't really – think much of you as a catcher uh you're going to be our 25th guy even if you make the team where you'll probably get either traded released or sent down to the minor leagues because we don't know what we're going to do with you well i went into spring training with the mindset of you know what i'm uh, i'm just going to go out and just pedal i had this image of a sticker on, a, on my bible um, of a tandem bicycle and it was a challenge to just 
sit on the back seat and trust God and pedal my heart out. And for the first time in my career, my life, I just had freedom. And it was simple. I just had to pedal and trust. So I went out with my gear bag of, I had a third baseman's glove, a first baseman's glove, an outfielder's glove, and all my catcher's gear. And uh, every day in spring training, I just said, I'm just going to pedal today. And I went out and had the greatest spring training of my life. I, it, was, it was freeing. Um, there was no pressure. There was no tension. I thought, worst case scenario, I'm, you know, I, I end up somewhere other than here, and I might be bagging groceries back home or going to college, but at least I'm going to have some peace when I'm doing it. And uh, I ended up making the team as a 25th guy. And Tony Muser and uh, some of the coaching staff told me I had a 0% chance, <laughs> a 0% chance of making the team going into spring training. But yet, when I just gave it to God and, and pedaled and trusted, it, it became 100%. It was, it was beautiful. But uh, when, when they told me I was no longer going to catch, it really broke my heart because I thought that was the end of my career. In my eyes, I, I took a lot of pride in being a hard worker. Um, I know I wasn't Salvador Perez behind the plate, but I, I, I worked extremely hard. And when they told me I was no longer going to catch again, I thought, oh, my career is over. And it ended up being the opposite. When, when my good friend Jeff King retired, uh, they needed a first baseman and asked me if I played first base. And I said, absolutely. I never told Tony Muser the last time I played it was when I was 13 years old. But nonetheless, um, Jeff King let me borrow his first baseman's glove when he retired. And uh, off I went. I had a chance to play every day for the first time in the big leagues. And um, thank God I took advantage of it. Isn't there some funny story with you pranking Jeff King at his ranch, like hanging and him hanging up on you because he didn't know it was you? Or am I making that up? I swear I remember that, reading about that. <laughs> no, I did call Jeff King. In fact, we still keep in great touch. We go fly fishing together once a year. We try to go golfing. And uh, he's, still became, he's still a great friend of mine. But I did call him, and uh, it was shortly after he retired. And uh, I said, uh, Mr. King, um, uh, this is uh, Kirk Robinson speaking. And uh, I just wanted to uh, see, as a member of the Royals, if you'd be interested in coming back as a designated hitter and first baseman. And and uh, he says, uh, you got the wrong number, sir, and hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I called him back. I said, Kinger, this is Sweeney. And he goes, oh, you little rat. Um, but he is uh, hes a dear friend of mine, one that I admire. He was a, guys like him and Mike McFarland, Jeff Montgomery, uh, Tim Belcher, those were the guys that were like big brothers for me. They taught me how to play the game, how to do it the right way, how to be a pro, how to be a leader. And those those are the things that I tried to pass along to the, the younger players and that I played with in Kansas City. And, and now those guys like Billy and Alex Gord and Hoach, um, those guys are the cornerstone of this organization now. From 2000 to 2002, you were a monster out there, man. You hit over 300 every single year. You had 333 and 342 of those years, 29 home runs twice, 100 RBIs twice, and then that magical year of 144. But then taking aside the individual stuff for a second, because I know you're a team guy, mm-hmm. and, as all of us are, but yeah. you know the team had all those great position players, but you could just never quite you know, break through in the AL Central. How frustrating was that back then and even today when you think back to that? Well, Dave O., uh, again, you know, I've shared this before, but uh, I, I can I can taste it. I can feel the emotions in my heart right now. Every year on October 1st or September 31st, whenever it was, the last game of the season, and um, when I sat in my locker after that last game and I'd reflect over the year, and, you know, there were some good statistical years personally for me, but I was miserable um, because as as an individual, I always felt like I could have done more. 
when I hit 340, I, I ended up two two points shy of a batting title that a guy that was cheating, uh, Manny Ramirez, beat me out uh, by doing steroids. Uh, I was I was bitter because I thought I should have gotten three two more hits over the course of 500 at bats, and I could have won that batting title. When I had 144 RBIs, I thought, doggone it, I should have had 160. When I hit 320, it should have been 340. And I never was satisfied ever with any with anything that I did personally. Um, number two, the part that stung the most is saying my season's over and we didn't make the playoffs again. And that was the part that hurt the most because honestly, I'd rather hit 200 and make the playoffs than hit 340 and drive in 140 something runs and and sit in fourth place or fifth place. And I'm out fishing on a on a ranch with Jeff King, fly fishing when the Yankees and the Red Sox and uh, the White Sox and the Twins are playing in the playoffs, and I, I just I couldn't even stand to watch TV um, because that's all I ever played for was to win, and it wasn't about personal accolades or statistics; it was about winning, and um, that was the hardest part. In fact, in fact, Martin, remember that name? Of Hibble? course, of course. Martin came up to me when he got traded over, and and we we're 15 games out or 20 games out, and it's in August, and he says, "How do you do it?" And he's a young player. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, we're 20 games out of first place, and he says, y- y- your back's killing you. You're an older player. You're... He goes, but every single day I've been here, you've been passionate about every at-bat, about every game. You're diving all over the place, and how do you do it? I mean, how the heck do you do it? And I was like, Mark, when I play the game, I don't think about how many games we're back. I don't think about my average. I don't think about my back. I just think about what can I do today to be a winner? What can I do today to be the best? And it was really cool that a young player picked up on that because that impacted the way he played as a Royal. And uh, it's not about personal stats. It's about winning. And um, I don't know. That's just the way I was taught to play the game. Uh, around that time, something I've always wondered about, Tony Muser had that famous uh, milk and cookie and tequila quote, which I've never yeah. read a, a reaction from you on that. I don't know if it was actually a slide or if you took it at that or if it was just a joke. But, but what were your yeah. thoughts on that whole quote in that situation? Well, I've never, man, I, I love you, Davo, man. I, I'm saying things that I've never said anywhere publicly. I'm saying with you, here comes another one. Well, I was hot because I, I looked, I really like Tony Muser a lot. I love the man. He's a great, great man. Um, but I was flat out hot when I, I don't read the paper. I, um, when I was playing, I never listened to the sports talk radio shows because they're either going to tell you you're a heck of a lot better than you are or a heck of a lot worse than you are. And, you know, fans are going to write in what they're going to write in, and I just never wanted to pollute my mind with that noise. But when I caught wind, I didn't read it, but family, friends in town says, my Tony Muser took a slap in your face and is, you know, is, is taking a shot at you for being a man of faith and not going out to the booby bars or partying and said you got to be a real man to play this game. And so I was, I was hot. I, I, first, I was the first one into the ballpark that day at, one o'clock in the afternoon, I stormed right into his office, grabbed the paper, and slammed it on his desk, and I said, Tony, what is this crap? And I was really upset. And he says, Michael, sit down, calm down. I said, Tony, you can say I stink, you can say my back's hurt, but if you ever attack me or my character or my faith, um, we're going to have problems. And Tony looked at me and said, Mike, I have nothing, no, not a problem with you at all. He said, the media ran with this. They took it out of context. They're trying to use this as a way to divide our clubhouse, to um, 
sell some newspapers. He said, I admire you for the man that you are. He said, but the point I was trying to make is that sometimes you're, you're, you're a happy guy, you're smiling, you're kind to everybody, but as a team, I was trying to make the statement that we need to be gruff, we need to be rough, we need to go out and play hard and play to win. And I said that, you know, we don't, we don't want to have the milk and cookies type of player where you're just, we need these tequila drinking, hard-nosed, <laughs> scrappy players. And he said, if, if it came across as me taking a shot at you, I apologize. And you know what? From that moment on, we were good. Um, it never came out publicly because I didn't comment on it, but um, it was handled. And uh, I still really do care about Tony Muser a lot. Yeah, I liked him. He was underrated, I thought, as a manager. Yeah, he's a great man. So 2003, Tony Pena, quite the character. And wow, what a, what a you know, it's, <laughs> I guess it's kind of sad that we consider it a magical year since we missed the playoffs. But, you know, yeah, you guys no. won 83 games. You had that amazing, what, 16 and 4 start. You were in first place in yep. mid August. That season with Tony Pena and the 03, what do you think most about that when you look back? It was a fun season. I remember Mendy Lopez hitting a walk-off. I think it was a walk-off home run on that first homestand. And, I mean, we just – it's like everything that we did ended up turning out right, except the last two weeks in September. <laughs> um, that was the closest up in that point in my career to get to the playoffs. And I'd had some injuries, but I was – I didn't care. I didn't care that I didn't drive in 100 runs that year. I didn't care that I didn't hit 340 because I was like, this is what baseball's about playing games in, in, in September that give you a chance to get to the playoffs. And it was so much fun. It was heartbreaking that we ended up short. But, you know, rest in peace, um, our good friend uh, Jose Lima, he was a great part of that. Uh, I, loved, I loved playing against him because he was, he was all animated, and, it, it, and, and I, I took it as kind of cocky. And I, I always said, guys that disrespect a game like that, I want to crush them. And it kind of lit a fire under me to just – really want to beat him down when I played against him and I and I had some good success against him because of his antics on the mound and but playing with him I saw another side of uh, Jose Lima he was the most caring loving passionate teammate I'd ever played with in my entire career really whether he whether his ERA was seven or two whether he had won or lost whether he was hurt or healthy he was on that top step every single game with a towel in his hand and just cheering on his teammates. He was the best. And I know recently he died a couple years ago. Um, his wife, Melissa, um, still lives in Kansas City uh, in, the, in the Midwest area. And um, he, he is just a beautiful man. And that's, those are the things that I remember most uh, about that period. Obviously, that was just kind of the start of your back issues as well that year, and that hampered you for a good majority of the rest of your career. Um, yep. How difficult was that to deal with all those years? Obviously very difficult. And then what role did your faith you know, play in helping you get through that? Yeah, it was hard, Davo. Um, like I said, my, my back issues, it was, it was brutal. Um, the thing that hurt the most was uh, the, 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 the displeasure that I felt from the fans. Um, and, and it was probably a, a small percentage, but getting booed in your own stadium, uh, that, was, that was a hard pill to swallow. And I, I had opportunities to cheat and take, you know, guys that I played with said, Mike, if you take these steroids, the doctor says you ruptured a disc in your neck again or you have three herniated discs in your low back and you can't play for six to eight weeks. Well, if I, if I give you this growth hormone and steroid, you can be healthy in a week and a half. 
And as great as that sounded on paper, I knew it was cheating. I knew it was wrong. And thank God, as I sit here as a 40-year-old man with five kids at home, I can look them in the eye and say, you know what? Daddy had some times in his career that were tough. There were times that I could barely walk or breathe, and I'm getting booed in my own stadium. Um, people are writing things about you in the local paper, and people on the local um, sports talk radio shows just crucifying you. But I know I did things the right way. I, I never took a shortcut, and there's a lot of there's a lot of joy in having no regrets when you get done with your career. Sure, I wish I had a better spine. In fact, just this morning, as we're getting ready for school. I'm making smoothies for the kids and breakfast, and after feeding our three-week-old a bottle at 6 in the morning. Um, and my son says, Dad, if your back and your, and, and your knee didn't hurt, do you think you'd still be playing? And I said, absolutely. I know when I retired I could still hit. Um, and I could still play the game, but just my physical limitations in my back and my knees um, kept me from continuing to play. And I would rather be the guy that I am here, um, Davo, that was booed and uh, ridiculed um, because of injury than a guy that made a heck of a lot more money, um, than a guy that hit a lot more home runs and had better stats, um, than, and then a guy that had a lot of regrets because he cheated the game and, and cheated his fellow peers because that's not – that's not what life's about. Life's about doing things the right way. And how did my help, how did my faith help me through it? When I was tempted to not tempted, when I was presented opportunities to cheat and to get healthy quicker by using means that were illegal and wrong and immoral, um, the Holy Spirit that lives inside my heart just convicted me, saying, "Mike, that's wrong." Um, you, know, you do a lot with the Dare program, telling kids to say no. You've never smoked a joint or done any drugs don't start now and that was those were the things that as i was you know having tears rolling down my cheeks as i was going to sleep at night from the booing or the things written or the things said um those are the things that stuck with me just do things the right way do it right and um as i sit here today i'm glad i did it that way how are you able to to be the bigger man and, and not say anything and get through that? Because I mean, I think you know, hopefully, about eighty five to ninety percent of Royals fans never did that. But I mean, I just it, it would frustrate me so much in your shoes, knowing that you took less money to stay. You wanted to be a Royal. You even put a clause in there to stay a Royal if the team had success. You put the team first. I mean, how did how did you yeah. get through that, man? That's got to be tough. It was tough. You know, um, my agents still kick me today because they said, man, the Yankees would have probably paid you almost double what you signed with the Royals yeah. if you would have just played it out that one more year because they're in New York. And they talked to the Yankees GM, and I was on their radar. But I really, I mean, I'm a loyal guy. Um, I've, I've, I've really wanted to play my entire career as a Royal. I really wanted to be a guy like a George Brett or a Frank White that helped the Royals get to the, back to the playoffs. And um, the Glass family was great with me. They made a huge investment, and unfortunately, um, it didn't work out the way I think the Glass family had hoped and the way I had hoped. So looking back, um, I, I, I just tried to be the better man always. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 that's my only that's my only void in my career was not bringing out baseball to Kansas City. That's it. 
Well, you know, you'll you'll come back and help us do that now. And, and you came back to and retire then, a royal. For one day, you got to retire a royal. But before we talk about that real quick, that you got a hit in your only postseason at bat. You did make the playoffs with Philly in 2010. Obviously, that wasn't as special as, as the Royals, but I'm sure it was also very right. special to you as well. What was that experience like? Well, going down the stretch, we, were, we had a few games to go, and we were playing in, in D.C., and we're playing against the Nationals. And Ryan Howard had been scuffling, so uh, Charlie Manuel throws me in at first base, and we're facing a lefty Detweiler and um, hit a home run in the first inning, made some good defensive plays, and we win. I don't know what the score was, but I was instrumental in the win. So after the game, they asked me to do the post-game show, and we, we just clinched the uh, National League East. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do the post-game show. I'm going to go upstairs, and I'm, I'm going to miss the, the fireworks up in the clubhouse. I've been waiting 20 years playing professional baseball for this moment. I'm going to miss it. I go up in the clubhouse, and... Uh, Everyone's just kind of hanging out, waiting. And they're like, Ryan Howard stands up and says, all right, boys, Sweeney's here. Let's get this party going. And I'm like, oh, man. So Ryan Howard gives me a bottle of champagne, and he says, Sweeney, he said, it's only right that you're the, the first one to crack that first bottle of champagne. He said, get this party started. And it, it still chokes me up today um, to think about it. But... When I, was, when I came to Philly, I was just an older guy that wanted to pour passion and life into these guys. And we were four games back when I got there, and we ended up winning the division by four, four games. And it was, uh, it was the most exciting part of my career because we, we did get a chance to go to the playoffs. And in my only at-bat, I faced Aroldis Chapman. First pitch, 103. Second pitch, 102. Third pitch, 102. And got a line drive into base, uh, base hit into left field. Uh, the most beautiful part was we, we did it in Philly in front of our home fans. There was 53,000 people. And uh, as I got to first base, my entire team was on the top step just applauding me. And it wasn't like it was a game-winning hit, but Roy Halladay said that was the loudest the bench on was the entire year because I just I just tried pouring life into those guys and being passionate, and, and it came back to me that one moment. Also, my dad, my mom, my wife, Shara, and my agents were in the stands watching, and I couldn't have picked a better way to finish up, only had that moment been in Kansas City. That's great. Well, you've been real generous with your time. I've got uh, two last questions for you real quick here. Yeah. Um, one amazing story. I've heard you talk about this before. The Minnesota against Sidney Ponson. You crush a home run off of him after a little sick boy had asked you to hit one that night. Tell that story. Yeah. Oh, man, I'll never forget this. Um, we're in Minnesota, and... Um, I get a I get a Jeff Davenport, the team traveling secretary, gets a, an email sent to the to the Royals saying my my little nine year old son is in the hospital um, getting brain surgery and he might not make it through the surgery. Can, his Mike Sweeney's his favorite player. Could you please please ask Mike Sweeney to say a prayer for our son? Today he's going through brain surgery. Tonight um, or maybe the following day. He's having brain surgery. Please ask Mike Sweeney to pray for our son tonight. Um, kind regards and the name and the number. So I get the email. Jeff Davenport gives it to me and says, Mike, here, just want to pass this along to you. I said, better than that, let's, let's get a hold of that family. So we ended up calling the family um, out just an hour or two before the brain surgery. Um, I speak with the boy and, uh, and just prayed with him, prayed with his family. And I told him, I says, he says, Mike Sweeney, can you go out tonight and hit a home run for me? 
And I said, buddy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try as hard as I can to hit a home run for you tonight. And the first at bat, I had about a seven or eight pitch at bat. And the second that ball went off my bat, boom, I knew it was way gone. It was 12, 13 rows up in the Metrodome. And the joy that I felt, it was bigger than just hitting a home run for the team. It was, I thought about that little boy in the hospital. And it's the fastest I've ever ran around the bases because I felt like I was floating. Because I felt like there's a little boy that's, because he said he was going to be watching the game from the hospital. And I, I was just floating around the bases. And I, I was just so excited. And the most beautiful thing was that next morning I spoke with the parents after surgery. And they said, a miracle has happened in our son. He made it through surgery. The doctors say he's going to be fine. And you should have seen the look on our son's face when all his friends from school were around his hospital bed just a couple hours before his brain surgery. And when you hit the home run, tears filled our son's eyes and said, Mike Sweeney hit that home run for me. Wow. Mike Sweeney hit that home run for me. And uh, last time I heard, that little boy's doing great. He's healthy, and he gave me a memory that I'll never forget. That's what it's all about. Wow. Um, well, one final question for you. What would you like to say to Royals fans in conclusion? Wow. Um, you got me there. <laughs> yeah. No, if I could say something to Royals fans, it is this. Um, it was an absolute joy to play five years of minor league baseball in the Kansas City Royals organization. Um, I met some of my best friends in the world. Um, I was embraced by some of the greatest fans in baseball. Um, I still consider Kansas City home today, even though I live here in San Diego. Um, playing 13 years in the big leagues in Kansas City was 13 of the greatest years of my life. Um, getting to fulfill a childhood dream that I had since I was a five-year-old boy in Kansas City is something I'll never forget. Um, and uh, someday, even though I, I may have let fans down by not having a healthier back um, or a healthier knee and not bringing a championship to Kansas City as a player, I'm going to do everything in my power as a member of the Royals organization to do that in the near future. So I just want to say thank you to all the, our fans in Kansas City, um, the ones that support the Royals, and um, cheer for these guys. You you think that these guys are superhuman, um, that they get paid tons of money and all that matters to them is the money and the game. But what matters to them is to have a, a bunch of fans that come out and cheer them on and to know that their work is not in vain. And... Go out there and cheer on the Royals and uh, be a part of this, this special period in Royals history because um, I have a great feeling that the next year or two is going to be a year that people are going to talk about like they talk about 1985 in Kansas City. And uh, I'm going to be a part of it, and hopefully um, you are too.